Good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to this uh, discussion on private sector impact in fragile states. Some do's and a few don'ts. Uh, I'm Sara Pantuliano, I'm the chief executive at ODI. And it's great to be able to have this conversation today in a context where, you know, for the past two days we've been discussing how many pressures and shocks, you know, that we are globally um, sort of having to withstand, you know, the obviously the aftermath of the pandemic, uh, food security crisis that can follow, obviously, you know, the multiple shocks that result from uh, um, the situation in Ukraine. You know, these are all risks that are transpandery and interconnected and those who will feel the impact the most are the countries that are the poorest, the so-called fragile, not the word I particularly like, but that's how we've come to define them. Um, you know, those countries are, you know, face all kind of levels of instability and, and challenges. Um, and often it is when you have this type of, you know, real um, systemic crisis that you have the best multilateral innovation. So I'm really hoping that we've been talking about how we bring private sector, public sector, civil society better together, you know, to respond to the challenges that particularly these countries have. I'm hoping that this is the moment for multilateral innovation. And these conversations that we've had, particularly in Davos, for a long time about, you know, this... Uh, um, bringing together of businesses and public sector, you know, to respond to these challenges can finally start to become reality. And so that's why we wanted to convene this particular conversation to actually have a, a bit of a different lens. Let's talk about what we know has worked. Let's build on experiences that we've already had and hear from colleagues that can bring the direct um, experience of what they have done, what they have learned, what they've learned that worked, and also what they've learned that didn't work quite as well. And think, you know, how we can build on, you know, this learning that already exists and start, you know, taking this, um, this learning to a different scale. So I've got a brilliant panel with me, a set of colleagues and friends that are, are really, you know, I think are pioneers um, in this space. Before I introduce them, just to encourage all of you to tweet the best thing you hear from the conversations, you know, best insights, contributions, the hashtag is WEF22, so that we can generate a little bit of um, interest online as well. But I've got a great panel with me. To my um, left is Per Hegenes, the CEO of the IKEA Foundation. Um, next to Per is Anlur Kishel, the founder and CEO of GSA, Global Sovereign Advisor. Next is uh, Ian Willem Schreigund, Vice President and Global Head of Government and Public Affairs at Royal Phillips. And last but not least, Katrin Vajagodahu, the Director of Politics and Governance at ODI. Great set of colleagues. Let's get this conversation started and let's really bring the best of you know, the experience that we all um, have uh, to the table. We were supposed also to have Marianne Etibet from MSD for Mothers. Unfortunately, she has tested positive to COVID, <laughs> so she's not with us. Um, yeah, we, we won't be able to rely on those insights, I'm afraid. Um, let me start with, uh, yeah, Willem. In Willem, you have a lot of experience in bringing, you know, sort of the best of what business um, can offer to, to these discussions. Can you, from your experience, um, tell us a little bit of, you know, what, what, what is your experience of, as a business of investing, you know, working in a fragile environment, perhaps where, you know, legitimacy of governments is challenged, where there is weak authority, the best do's and the don'ts. 
Sure, thanks. Um, that works? Yeah. Um, so fragile states are not the first countries that come to mind when you say, let's go make a priority of countries where we're going to invest in and make lots of money. So and there are somewhere in the bottom for all kinds of reasons, corruption, fragility, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so what you get as a company is that the, you therefore concentrate on Europe, United States, Japan, the usual suspects. Um, so when we defined our mission to improve people's lives uh, by two and a half billion people in 2030, we said, well, you know, the ones that are left behind in the SDG agenda and leave no one behind, they're not going to be served by this purpose, by this goal. So we need to have an additional goal to improve the lives of 400 million people in underserved communities. So basically, it's like you could replace that by saying in, in fragile states. Um, so we actually defined the purpose that we're, going to, that we're measuring in the same way as our financial purpose. So that's allowed us to concentrate on innovations that work in those settings. But you can't go to the market in the same way as you go to the Dutch market. You know, find yourself a distributor and things will happen. Um, so we, we resulted in you know, partnering with organizations and one of those organizations was UNFPA. And in Kenya, we started, I think about seven, eight years ago, uh, on trying to improve primary healthcare, in particular maternal and newborn child health um, in one of the regions uh, around Nairobi. And because uh, you know, maternal mortality was high, we had uh, healthcare solutions, um, and that worked all very well. You can put in technology, you put in a lot of people in there, and, and we were able to make quite some progress, and we were very proud of ourselves. And, and UNFPA came and said, well, that's all very nice, but um, could you also do it in Mandera County? Uh, Mandera County is the northeast of Kenya. It's Al-Shabaab territory. It's terrorist territory. I said, no, we can't go there. You can't put a Phillips person in Al-Shabaab Al territory and believe that that person comes back home. I said, no, so no, can't do that. I said, well, then there's no point. You know, you're doing this in the easy places in Nairobi. Right? Try to do it in the hard places. And the only way in which we could do that is by teaming up with them. So they would get the blue helmets. They would get the security. They would get the people to actually do the delivery for us. And we would do the technology. And in partnership, we were actually able to improve maternal mortality in a region that has the highest maternal mortality in the world. Now, fast forward a couple of years later and said, well, can we do this at even bigger scale? So the next challenge comes, well, let's do this in Congo Brazzaville. Again, not on our priority list of countries where we go to market, right? But there was a willingness from the government and the UNFPA was willing to you know, be a convener of trust, a broker of trust amongst the different parties and bring in all the people that we needed that we, we would need to rely upon to actually improve the quality of care. Not on a donation model, on a business model. So a sustainable business model where we could actually earn a decent living at the end, shared value. And so those kind of partnerships are really important. Um, they'll take more time. Um, they'll, they are, and things are gonna go wrong. Um, and so the most important thing is when the things go wrong, how do you deal with those? Um, and how do you write them? I mean, you know, we are risk averse, so normally when things go wrong, then legal and compliance come in and say, ah, let's run away from this place. Uh, so you need to have patience and you need to have um, a, a good dialogue and trying to understand how you over overcome your challenges. Now, I'll have another example later on, but maybe I'll, st I'll stop at this example. Excellent. And, and patience is, I'm sure, something we'll hear a lot in the conversation. Before I, I move to other colleagues, can I also ask you to reflect? I mean, you, you touched on something about, you know, you said, um, obviously, we also wanted to make profit. So in your experience, have you found that actually these kind of investments, you know, responsible business investment, investment with the purpose, actually can leverage more profit as well? Because that's what a lot of businesses are interested to hear as well. I don't necessarily, they'll, they'll bring in more profit. 
Um, but I was discussing this with J&J &J once about, okay, why do you do this? Why do you invest in the most difficult areas? So there is a profit element in it, but it's, you know, if you want to make profit, then if, if it will be more profitable, everybody would have gone there. But there are other benefits. You know, they're, they're, they do give your employees enormous satisfaction and motivation to actually work on those challenges, much more so than you know, working on middle-aged men in the Netherlands that have certain healthcare problems. Um, and they also help um, drive a different kind of innovation that you wouldn't get in other areas. So the, the motivation, uh, the reputation, but also your, uh, um, the way in you, which you give meaning to your purpose is a lot more visible than, than in other areas. So I think we should look at this in a much broader sense of value than just money. Brilliant, and that is a really important metric that we will come back to later on. Anlor, what have you seen from your experience of you know, working with governments like, such as the Côte d'Ivoire, and you've done a lot of work there, that really works well, and what kind of incentives are needed you know, to really make sure that you can get the best of the partnership with you know, governments to make business work? Yes, yeah, so actually the most important point is the government has to be willing to do it. Because, you know, sometimes you have the private sector who wants to invest, uh, but then the government is not 100% in line with it, uh, or you have the reverse, right? So you need to have both partners who are willing to understand each other and also who are willing to work together. We also need to be very aware that the level of development of countries is, of course, very different. I mean, there are you know, countries where you cannot directly go with the private sector. You need to have a transition. You need to have heavy public investment, and then the public investment is not going to be there to last. It needs to kind of like transition to, uh, to, the public se to the private sector. So it also needs to be done with kind of like guarantees from the government. So it needs to be specific partnerships, and some companies are not 100% maybe used to because it's not the case in other countries. So you also need to have the right formula, the right frames, the right financing, the right speed, because you also have a divergence of speed, right? The private sector wants to be very quick, and that's very normal. The government or public bodies sometimes takes more time. So there are many kind of like things that you need to reconcile. But actually, I've seen in my experience, and irrespective, honestly, of if the country is fragile or not fragile, if there is a will, it's quite unbelievable how kind of like quick uh, things could do. The most important thing also is to have accountability. You need to have people who are in charge of a project on both sides. And if also there, the team are there, the support is there, the political support is there, you get things done. The most difficult thing is to basically have an idea, a concept, and not really something concrete to apply, right? So people need to have roadmaps and need to, again, be accountable for the project that they're going to be working on. And then you also need, of course, as I was mentioning, to have the political support, because down the line, you're going to find that you have a law that doesn't work, or you're going to find that there are corruption, or you're going to find a lot of those things. So you need to be able to signal them so that you can basically say, you know, guys, if you really want this, then you need to make an effort. And if you have this kind of, I would say, call it a mature dialogue between the public sector and the private sector, I think that's when actually you make progress and people have learned something down the road. And this creates a trust because then you have, of course, you know, a test or model that you can then kind of like replicate. And that's how you make things work on a larger scale. I don't really believe suddenly, you know, from one day there is nothing to the other day there is everything. This, those things don't work, right? It's a step-by-step -step process, but where there is a strong, uh, you know, really will to work together, then things can be addressed. Okay, so what is emerging clearly from the discussions is, you know, the need to have patience, build trust, you know, develop, you know, strong partnerships. 
Is there a role also for international institutions like the IMF? You have a lot of experience you know, from the IMF. We hear a lot about you know, this de-risking and still doesn't happen. So how can we make this quantum leap? But also credit um, rating agencies, that's something else you, know, you have a lot of experience in. <laughs> Tell us a little bit what they can do. Yeah, you, you clearly need to have the support uh, from the international institutions, and I would call it broadly from the markets, because all what we're talking about you need to finance, and all what we're talking about you need to finance it in a sustainable way, because obviously you don't want to suddenly increase your debt so that it's unsustainable. You don't want to raise debt at 9%, 10%. Uh, you need to kind of like have the right financing for the right purpose. Typically, if you are doing something social, paying 7% or 8% is never going to yield it the right way. If you also do an infrastructure, having just a two-year instrument doesn't work neither. I mean, you need to be much, much longer. So we see that there are a lot of those mismatches which can seem like it's common sense, but in fact, it's happening, right? So I think that uh, everyone around the table actually, be those big institutions, big the rating agency, be it also advisors, I mean, all of us somehow need to be, again, aware of where the country is from a level and from a human capital point of view, and then to be kind of like bringing them into the journey. What does it concretely mean? The IMF can do very good things, but it can also be very rigid in a way that it looks at things. It could also potentially not look into what I call political economy that is so important, right? Because some recipes that work in some countries don't work in others. You need to take into consideration uh, some of the particularities of, of countries. And countries can be sit next to each other. They don't have the same way that inflation works, for example. Uh, I have an example on this. Typically, Benin and Togo, sometimes people compare them. But actually, the way that inflation works in both countries is completely different. You cannot apply the same recipe. You cannot have the same subsidies. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be working. Um, so, so you need this, uh, this knowledge. And sometimes the, the IMF is not maybe agile enough in order to be, to be helpful in this matter. Sometimes also, you need very quick emergency financing. And if you have to go through all the process, I mean, you know, Sometimes it's, it's too late. So World Bank and, and IMF can certainly do more in, in the way that they can even be quicker, although they have, of course, uh, improved. When it comes to rating agencies, uh, it's, it's interesting because we were asked a couple of months ago uh, by, the U by USAID to work on a study that looked into biased for Africa, for example, meaning that there was an intuition that rating agencies are biased when it comes to African rating, meaning that they would kind of like get them lower than in other countries. And uh, there, there is also a provocative piece from one uh, uh, broker who basically compared Caribbean and uh, Africa and actually shows that while economies can sometimes be the same, the rating of the Caribbeans are, are much higher than the African country. So we demonstrated this because we touched upon, I think, something that is very important. Most of those countries, in order to indebt themselves, have to indebt themselves in, in dollars or euros, which is not their currency. So as a result, you have a big mismatch between uh, you know, what they're actually producing and what they in which they finance themselves. So this all kind of like goes for the development of domestic market that is so important that also goes to your first question around the trust, around the partnership between the partners. Because if you have no trust in a country currency, you know, you don't have local markets. Excellent. Uh, Pair, EIK Foundation has been a pioneer. We've talked about, you know, sort of de-risking, sort of patient capital, you really have been a pioneer in trying to stimulate private investment in countries affected by crisis. So can you look from the perspective of you know, the experience of what you've learned in the process and tell us a little bit what philanthropy in general can do to be you know, that agent that helps sort of advance the conversation? Uh, thank you. Um, I mean, I can't disagree with 
what everyone has said here, but uh, let me look at what can philanthropy do specifically. And I think the biggest, biggest strength, or, um, strength of philanthropy is really the ability to take risks. I mean, we can, we can take risks and we can fail, and we can fail if we fail responsibly without any financial consequences at least. And that enables us to look at things in a different way. That enables us to look at how can we create a model that works differently, that's more efficient in a specific situation, and how can we invest in, in building the evidence that that model actually works. And if we can do that and take it to a level where the evidence is there, the learnings are being captured, we can share that with, with other investors who can take it to a larger scale than we can ever do. So I think, think taking the risk to develop a model, demonstrate what works, who, what can work differently, uh, bringing people together to create a pipeline and, and scale is something that uh, we are particularly good at. Secondly, we can also take um, an active role in the de-risking process because uh, in some cases, if you want to engage the private sector in the most difficult areas, and as Jan Williams said, uh, the purpose of business is to make profits, and it should be because if you don't make profits, you would die. So business needs to look for opportunities to make profits, which is and means looking for the most, the easiest place to go, and they should. But in, in the case of, of the difficult places, we can help de-risk an investment to get investment up to a point when it becomes profitable. And that's a role we see uh, for ourselves as a foundation. And uh, we're looking for opportunities to actually, what I call, leverage the philanthropic capital, because we can either invest the philanthropic capital in doing direct interventions, and that's good, it's gonna help a few people, if we look for ways to leverage the philanthropic capital, we can probably do 10 times more. And it's looking for those opportunities and those collaborations, um, that's key. This world is very siloed. Everyone has their own role and they don't work together. And I think it, in order to lift the economic level in the most uh, fragile communities, let's call it fragile communities, uh, the, the, most, the communities at risk the hardest to reach people, you have to have a collaborative approach. It has to be approached where you bring government, NGOs, uh, finance institutions, um, people like ourselves and business together and see what are the opportunities here. And if we work together, how can we together lift the community? So I, do you want me to talk about learnings? Yes, please. So um, of course, there are lots of learnings. I've been doing this with, with the foundation for the last uh, 12 years. Um, and, and the learnings are, Align with what we heard from colleagues here. I, I think if I want to pick two learnings that are really important for me if you operate in a very difficult, hard to reach environment is that you have to develop the solution with the people who are there. And um, as you were alluding to, don't come with a fixed concept. Don't think that you can sit in Geneva, New York and figure out what's best for the people on the ground. Start to build uh, a solutions oriented approach with the people on the ground. And if you do that, the people on the ground will have skin in the game and they'll participate and they will own the solution and chances are it's gonna work much better. Um, aligned to that is you really need to have a good understanding of the local context and the power structure in the local context. I made a mistake of going to the central government in, in a country and, and doing deals and coming out into the uh, rural areas and saying, oh, here's the letter, this, this entitles us to so and so and they just laugh and say, well, uh, that's." That might be what they think, but actually it works differently here. And then you need to really build those, those good relationships with the, not only the people in the community, but the, 
the, the governance structure, the local and the regional governance structure, and the informal structure, because in these communities, there will be informal structure that often are more, more powerful than the, than the formal structure. And they all have to be part of this and support it. And if they are, you can achieve a tremendous impact. Um, let me just add one element to this, which is different than what we've talked about so far. And, and working in these really hard to reach uh, poor communities, vulnerable communities, um, I come to understand over 12 years that there are two things that are absolutely essential for significant growth and development. And that's access to finance and access to energy. Um, you have to really realize how much energy plays a role in everything that happens in a society, in a, in a person's life. If you have no access to energy, you, there are so many things you can't do, and certainly you can't really, really pull yourself out of poverty because you have no ability to improve the level of, of farming yields and, and, and productivity, for example. You have no ability to build small businesses and serve the community. Um, access to energy and in order to set up these businesses, access to some kind of finance is absolutely key to, to lift the community out of vulnerability. Fantastic. So I'm getting, uh, I, I was scribbling down. So I've heard um, from the conversation, if we really want to stimulate you know, this collaboration that can really you know, incentivize more businesses to contribute to global public goods, I've come up with four Ps. So it's patient, it's people-centered, it's partnership-based, and all-around purposeful. So maybe we're starting to get a sort of P-based framework you know, emerging from this discussion. Before I go to Katrina, I also did a, a quick reaction from you on... Uh, What's happening with Ukraine? Because I think what we're seeing is actually a lot of, you know, business response that is driven not not as much by shareholders but by stakeholders. So, do you think this is a bit of a you know watershed moment, a defining moment, or is just a temporary emotional reaction, but it's not really the <laughs> the big change? I, I I wish I could call it a watershed moment, but I can't. Um, I I. I went together with the CEO of IKEA down to the border uh, of Ukraine uh, inside Poland uh, very very shortly after the war started. And we went there to re really better understand what can the foundation do to help the, the Ukrainian refugees and what can the company do. And we are both engaged in different ways to try to improve the lives of, of, of now millions of uh, ref uh, refugees coming out of Ukraine. I, I'm, I was so impressed by the way, the, in that, this case, the Polish people embraced the refugee situation invited people to their homes to stay in their homes, um, provided opportunities for them to do what they needed to do to, to process the trauma and, and, and live as a normal life as possible on a short-term basis. Um, about the local communities, the way they organized uh, for anything from food to, to the essentials that people needed because they had nothing with them, um, the, the way the community reacted to, to actually receive huge number of people. I mean, you have to think about the sheer size of this with several hundred thousand people crossing the border every day. Um, it's really impressive and you can just see the sheer uh, commitment from almost everyone in the country. Now, having said that, um, we, uh, we, and, and we, give, we, give, we, we give them all opportunities to, to, to I mean, we've worked a lot with refugees, as you know, so uh, free movement not, is not always uh, an obvious thing for, for refugees. The right to work is not an obvious thing. The right to, in, in this case, even use public transport for free. I mean, there were 
so generous with all the Ukrainian refugees, and, and you, of course, all read about that in the media. Um, what concerns me is that we, we seem to now have different classes of refugees in Europe. We have the Ukrainian refugees who uh, get everyone we can, everything we can give them, and we embrace them, and they uh, are um, on a first class compared to um, the second class, which is really the, the Asian and African refugees coming out of Ukraine who are apparently not treated in the same way as, and given the same benefits as the, 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 the Ukrainians with the same skill co color as us. And then, of course, you have the third level, which is all the refugees who were already there. And many of those who came through the borders of Belarus when, when, when Belarus imported refugees to send to Poland. And, and those people are still in the same situation they were with very limited rights and very limited opportunities and very limited perspective in their lives. So, no, I don't think this is a watershed event. I think this is just a, a reaction to um, uh, a situation in Ukraine that we're shocked about and that we feel that we're very close to and therefore we're doing whatever we can to help them. And that's great. Yeah. I'm actually concerned about um, the long term there as well. There is a lot of you know, immediate kind of emotionally driven reaction. But this is a prototype crisis. This will be a prototype crisis. These refugees will be with us for a long time. And I think we'll see very different reactions if we don't support the public. But that's a different, for a different conversation. Uh, Catherine, Ian Willem touched on something very important in terms of you know, the business case for, sort of in, to see more uh, um, private sector investment in fragile states. Can you spell out what the value proposition should be? Thank you, uh, Sarah. I mean, this has been a very interesting conversation and I come last. So there are many things that have been said that I won't be able to touch on. But what I would say is that in terms of trying to crystallize what, what's in it for business, apart from the uh, discussions on, on, on the need to reach the furthest behind and so on, in terms of what's in it for business, when we speak about fragile context or underserved markets, we're speaking about a range of situations. Syria is not Sierra Leone, which is not Somalia. So understanding that range of differences is really important in terms of uh, promoting the possibilities that, are, um, that, that, that fragile situations uh, create for business. I would also say that if we look you know, in the conversations I've been at uh, over the last day or so, the SDGs have come up. Okay, so SDGs, everybody is committed to them. By 2030, we need to have made progress. But it's clear that in fragile and conflict-affected contexts, if we're not making, if we don't um, seriously invest in helping them uh, address structural causes of fragility, no one's going to be reaching 2030 and the SDGs and so on. So there is a you know peace or Addressing situations of conflict is kind of a pillar of the broader SDG agenda. So that's another thing. And, and then I would, I'm not sure if I could describe what we're in as a watershed moment for business. But it's clear that the decisions that business has taken in light of the Ukraine war, in terms of divesting, are quite significant. Stakeholders, consumers, not just uh, the responses of governments who were appalled by count and I think um, that um, for me anyway is kind of critical in terms of what is going to be driving business decisions it is no longer a climate has already shown us this it's no longer possible to ignore responsibility I mean 
this is the theme that many of the panels here in Davos are discussing. So for all those reasons, there is a business case to be made for looking into fragile, underserved markets for business. And I'd also add, I mean, COVID has trumped a lot of the economic growth that was with commodity price shocks, as well as um, uh, supply chain challenges. Um, but we could also see fragile markets as growth markets. I mean, Africa, take Africa as a continent for one, you know, with a demographic strength that's potentially important as markets. So, you know, for the, all those reasons, I think there is a business case to be made for, you know, promoting more investment um, in fragile and being able to do business, good business for good. I mean, let's not imagine that we're starting from scratch. You know, would-be fragile markets are also the sites of huge investment. Maybe not enough, but in the extractives, and the picture is not necessarily bright. We would want to be promoting an investment which was responsible for all the reasons uh, that other panelists have outlined. So um, those was, would be some of the, the ways in which I would spell out a business case for. As, as you talk about responsible investment, I'm, I'm surprised that nobody has mentioned ESG on this panel yet. I mean, because <laughs> of course we've, we continue to hear a lot about how, you know, sort of ESG metrics can drive, you know, good business. Would they really help? And what do we need to do to really make sure that they can help? beyond the E, because we've done a lot on the E, but the others? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, thanks, Sarah, you know, some of the um, challenges that, um, that, are, that face businesses, some of the, the reasons why risk is high, politi for political reasons, for reputational reasons, are really to do with structural governance challenges in fragile, that really drives conflict and fragility, exclusion, and all those things that mean that people are ready to go to war or be, um, be recruited in, in conflicts. Now, um, there, are, there are, as I said, there are the SDGs, and there is one particular one, SDG 16, which is focused on peace, strong institutions, inclusive and strong institutions, and justice, right? Now, there's been very interesting work, just to your question about the S and the G, the social and the governance, of trying to use that SDG framework and its 10 targets as a way of fleshing out what better social and governance standards would look like for business to transform from within, but also to shape the kinds of investments that they would then would drive um, uh, their behavior. So there's some work, very interesting work done by Peace Nexus with uh, the UN Global Compact, um, and other organizations around this. And I think it gives us a very interesting, useful starting point. Measurement is something else, uh, which would definitely have to be worked on. Great, Ian Willem and Anne Lohr want to come back on this. So our purpose is all about embracing the SDGs to improve health and well-being of people. Now, that's core competence, healthcare, so that's easy. Um, but we're also very risk-averse, like everybody in the sector. So being risk-averse means you avoid problems. Uh, but the ESGs or the SDGs actually force us to embrace these problems and address them within our company and our strategy. And I think that sometimes we need to be challenged. So UNFPA challenged us to go into Al-Shabaab territory. And companies also love a challenge. So they're risk averse, so they try to stay away from risk. But they also want to be challenged. They also like to innovate and to be encouraged to do something different. So about 10 years ago, uh, our 
Prince Jaime de Bourbon Parma came, was a raw materials envoy for the Netherlands, uh, was worried about the conflict minerals in the DRC and the Dodd-Frex Act, and, and the response of the international business community to Dodd-Frank, uh, which was to basically write out Africa out of their supply chain. They shall not do business in Africa because, you know, conflict. And we don't want conflict in our supply chain. And so everything was put in contracts and everybody was safe. So all business could say, yeah, we've avoided the conflict. We managed the conflict. Yes, very well done. The consequence was that the, the, the mining industry in the DRC fell flat on its face and even all the legitimate business collapsed. So the, the Jaime, who was working for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, came to Philips and said, would you mind going to the DRC and go buy some minerals. So well, we're not in the business of buying minerals. Uh, we're in the business making electronics, but about four or five steps down into our supply chain, you know, we have tin, tungsten, tantalum, and gold somewhere. Probably, we don't know. Uh, but we see it in their end in the electronics. We say, well, but, so we have money, so we can move our supply chains. We have the power of purchasing power. But we can't decide whether the DRC is any better than Russia or Canada or Australia. Uh, you know, you government officials, you have to make that decision. Um, and so I'm happy to buy in the DRC, but we're not going to go specialize in the DRC mines. And there's so many mines. Which mines should we buy from? So, well, then they developed a certification scheme. and said, well, if you're prepared to buy from these two mines, these two mines are safe. So, okay, we'll buy from it. One condition. The NGOs that are shouting in Congress, in the U.S. Congress, that you know all these country, companies that are working in the U.S. have blood or in the DRC have blood on their hands, they should agree as well that those are the right mines. So they brought in the NGOs. So the government and the NGOs could tell us what's the right behavior. Don't ask us what the right behavior is. Mm. We can use our purchasing power to exercise that right behavior. So we purchased from those two mines. So they went from DRC to Rwanda to Malaysia to Mexico and to the United States and finally into a village product. After that, those two mines recruited 800 people. Some of them were women and children, didn't belong there, so we had to solve that, especially not pregnant women, not good in mines, but you know, we'll have to fix that. But the certification scheme convinced other American companies that, oh, actually we have a role in addressing the fragility and creating a legitimate business in a fragile state to give it some hope. So now there are 1,800 mines in the DRC fully certified exporting their minerals into the global supply chain of corporates like us. But it started with challenging us. Uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs said, you should buy some mines, minerals from conflict regions. And, and, and that we don't see enough. The UN, the international organizations that have the mandate and the obligation to tell us, according to Ruggy, what's the right behavior and make it appealing for industry to actually exercise the right behavior because it works both ways. It's, it works for our purpose and our ESG commitments, and it gives us the security of the government that we're doing actually the right thing. It's a brilliant point, and that was a really good example of what you know, can work, it can work at scale, and what we need to do more of, exactly, and bring in more you know, of the UN, and yes, let's make sure that we can do more of this. Um, and look. Yeah, I wanted to make two points. The first point is, you know, whenever we have classification like ESG, I mean, obviously they are great, right? Environment, I think we're all clear what it means. Social, honestly, in a fragile or whatever you want to call it state, 
everything is social, in fact, right? So let's also be very careful into how we, we do things, right? Because actually, all the budget of a fragile state has to do with social. And then governance, you know, there also we have to be careful because we accepted some governance standard. Everybody was very happy to invest, and suddenly we don't like those governance standards anymore. So I guess what I'm saying here is that we always need to kind of like bear in mind that by applying this, we are judging somehow, and the governance honestly is the one that is the most difficult to kind of like address. Uh, obviously, corruption, I mean, this is not very difficult to disagree with corruption, right? But otherwise, on how a state is ruled, I mean, one needs to be very careful how to apply those, those standards, bearing in mind that you need to kind of like also, uh, you know, respect sovereignty of countries. And I find a lot of this in, in the cases that I'm working on, right? Because who are other people to tell you how to run your country? It's kind of like, you know, something that is very difficult. And sometimes by kind of like what you're forced to do, that's what happens, right? Same goes a little bit with the environment. Let me take the example of Uganda, right? Should actually, should they invest in oil or not? I mean, is it good or, or bad, okay? Well, at the same time, of course, when it comes to environment, otherwise they check all the box, right? But then are they going to be penalized because suddenly Total or others are kind of like investing and are they not going to receive financing because of this? The country needs this for development and how, who are we who have developed oil, you know, elsewhere to basically tell them that they should not? So sorry to be slightly provocative on this, but I just want to kind of like say also we need to be very careful on those uh, on those considerations. And just to your to your point, because I think it's it's highly interesting the example you give. I think you're laying out the global problem of the value of the supply chain, because you know sometimes also we come to countries and you say, well, it's very very bad. Chilun are working, and of course, I mean, who can disagree with kind of like Chilun should not work? But when you really look into it, sometimes it's also because. You know, you're buying cocoa from uh, Ivory Coast farmers at very, very, very low price, okay? And, you know, when you're kind of like 35 and you've worked in a field for cocoa, and basically it's kind of like you've done it in the traditional method, you're almost like an 80-year-old uh, European style, okay? Because you are so kind of like ill, having worked with in a very difficult condition. So, yes, you have your children who are helping you. Is it fair? Should, should they go to school? Yes, they should. But actually, this is a reality. So if actually you were able to increase also the money that they get, and if, of course, also you were allowing the consumer to buy it at the right price, if you were kind of like having everybody making a margin, because, you know, people who come and say, no margins, and you know, this doesn't make sense, everybody needs to have the right margin. But I think we need to rethink this. And because, you know, over the years, we've also been kind of like all very happy with shareholders receiving a lot of money. And I have nothing against shareholders. <laughs> I'm a shareholder myself of my company. But it's basically, where is the value? Where do we want it? And let's not have contradictory kind of like asks that we have with people because this one doesn't work in reality. We put on the table some massive issues. We just need a few other sessions to really start engaging that. But we only have 15 minutes and I do want to bring in um, the audience. So if you have any questions for any of the panelists or comments, please just raise your hand and there is a roving mic that is there. Please, gentlemen. If you can introduce yourself before you start, that'd be great. Hi. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Hi, I'm Sanjeev. I'm a board member of an organization called Africa Finance Corporation. We are perhaps Africa's largest infrastructure financing company. And thank you for that because it kind of allows me to ask a question uh, that I wanted to ask. That when you talk about engagement in distressed, fragile, challenged economies, a large part of the problems that keep perpetuating and repeating is legacy trade practices, right? And also legacy industrial practices. So I was talking in the environment panel and I said that one of the biggest reasons why 
companies should process more at source is not only because that benefits the local economy and creates jobs, but it also has a direct impact on the challenges we are seeing in global supply chains and the environment, right? So what I really want to know from the panel is from a private sector point of view, there is a growing case that one should try and produce things where it's naturally produced or to be found. But that's not the case. And certainly from an African continent point of view, that's not the case. So I would just like your views on it. Thank you. Great. Let me see if there are other questions. I'll take two or three, and then we'll do a concluding round. Please. My name is Pranilla, and I'm from the H&M Group. And I just have a, a tagging on question to that, to all of, all of you. Do you still believe in the global value chain? PC, but really important question. Any more? Hi, hi everyone. My name is Sean. I'm from the forum. Just a question on looking at fragile contexts, economies and communities. So you look at places like Afghanistan, Myanmar and stuff like that. And when they have certain upheaval or internal conflicts, other countries tend to impose sanctions on them. So if you look at the case of Myanmar, for example, you see Talanor diversing and it becomes uh, they leave the country, making people lose jobs, you know, unable to put food on the table and so forth. My question is then, what, what should a company that's already operating, an international company that's already operating in these kind of countries do? Should they forsake profit for a few years and continue with the country or work with the current new regime and try to find a solution? What would be the best alternative? Thank you. It's a difficult question, and there's no one size fits all. Excellent questions. Um, any more? <laughs> sorry, guys. Um, any last one? Because then I'll come to the panel, then we come to the end. No, I may come back to you if there is any more. Who wants to start with these easy questions? I'll, I'll, Pair. I'll start. Um, more a general comment. I think um, I spent a lot of time traveling in these countries, and uh, my biggest concern is. Uh, actually the perfect storm that we're seeing uh, happening in uh, sub-Saharan Africa right now, where we have already a large degree of poverty. We have the, the biggest drought since 40 years. Uh, on top of that, we will have much less food going into the country because of the, the, the war in Ukraine. We will have much less fertilizer going into the country to, 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 to actually grow the, the, the farms that are there because of the energy crisis and the, the, the raw material crisis. Um, this is going to be combined with the exponential population growth we have in that, on that continent is going to be a huge challenge for us. I believe that the, the, the problems that we normally uh, identify with that continent, so corruption, um, poverty, uh, uh, crime, uh, lack of governance, I think uh, most of those problems would change. Uh, over time, if we would, would invest in the country, if we would invest in the economy and grow the economy, economy uh, to the benefit for everyone. So to your point, of course, uh, traditionally, historically, we have extracted a lot of value out of this continent without leaving much of the value behind, which is why the, the continent finds itself uh, in, in the place they are today. 
and you combine that with the, with, the, with the population growth, I think the only thing we can do um, sitting here today is think about how can we invest in growing the economy uh, at different levels in different countries on, on the African continent. Because if we do that, over time we can improve the situation for the people and we will, we will um, at least um, fix some of the problems or we help them fix the problems. But working with the continent, working with the, with the people in, in, in that con on that continent in the different countries and in different regional, regional areas to really understand what it is we can contribute in order to help drive the economy and drive the growth and drive the improvement in, in quality of life in, in those countries. I think as a general thing, that's where I'm focusing. And I think if we don't do that, we're going to start to talk about all the, 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 the migration problems, the increased flow of, of people across borders across the Sahara, and those who don't die in Sahara will, might die in a, in a boat across the Mediterranean, and, who, and those who make it, they're, hell, they're, they're lucky. But they didn't do this because they wanted to go. They did this because they were forced to leave. Whether they were forced to leave because of a conflict, or more, more common right now, forced to leave because of climate change and the fact that they can't um, do what they used to do to, to feed themselves doesn't really matter because the problem is going to be there and we can take a preventive approach to that and see what we can do to invest there now or we can just wait for the disaster to happen and we might not be at the end of the disasters I mean we had a pandemic the pandemic was a much more of a financial problem for sub-Saharan Africa than, than it was a health problem as you know people couldn't go about their normal jobs and therefore they couldn't really make the money they needed to feed their, fam feed their family it was really not a big health problem it was a big economic disaster and then you add on the consequences of the war in Ukraine. And we might have another around the corner. So we, we have a lot to do, so we, we should get going quickly. Absolutely. Who wants to go next? Anlo? Yeah, maybe to say that it's a good practice to believe that every country needs to be roughly self-sufficient as an objective on its basic goods. Because let's kind of like reverse this. Let's say in Switzerland suddenly you know you, you don't have access to basic needs because of whatever reason. Are you happy about it? Of course you're not. You're dependent from the outside. So the good practice is that on basic things you need to aim to do this. So this is also to the question of the global value chain, right? Of course there are going to be goods that are going to fly around the world. But as much as you can produce locally, you should produce locally. And uh, actually, it's, uh, you have ex interesting e examples. And uh, on Greece, for example, there was an interesting experience. Because you had already some circular economy, I'm not saying that they didn't go into trouble. I'm, sa I'm saying that sometimes it kind of like helped as a buffer because you had kind of like this circular economy that was working. So it limited some of the horrible kind of like things that, that, that basically uh, happened. So this is first comment. And second comment very quickly on sanctions. I personally, it's a personal opinion, believe you, you, you should engage with people. I, I don't believe in sanctions uh, generally because actually the sanctions, when you take them, you usually hurt the people and that you don't want to hurt. So the population. So it usually serves exactly as a, as a contrary, and we're having examples of this over, over, and over again. Uh, you mentioned those countries, we can mention Venezuela. I mean, this is kind of like, has never worked and will never work in this way. So we need to rethink sanctions, I think. I actually agree with you on that. Jan Will. Uh, let me disagree then. So, okay, but I'll, f I'll start with something else. So on, on value change, uh, it's very nice uh, to produce everything local and for the basic goods, and you should try to do that. I'm not quite sure if it's going to work. Um, I'd be interested in your answer uh, f on f whether you believe in global value change. We do believe in global value change. I mean, if I look at CT scanners, we, we build about 1,000 or 10,000 a year, right? 
we're not going to be able to build them in every single country or even single region. Now, we regionalize supply chains, um, but what, one of the things that allowed us to actually increase the production, for example, of ventilators during COVID by eight times in three months during a global lockdown is because we had a global supply chain and we could move so fast and quickly. Now, so global value chains, yes, strongly believe in that, but they'll regionalize more. So we'll see more regionalization, but I don't think we'll see a lot of localization. Um, when it comes to um, invest, uh, let me, the, the sanctions, it's a very difficult question, and that's the, the same question we had about policymakers and the responsibility of governments. If governments believe that sanctions are going to work, it's their job to make it work. Where it is a problem is that the sanctions are often very unclear. So Myanmar, uh, question for us, are we going to stay or not? Can we sell a toothbrush from Philips in Myanmar? Probably yes. Should we sell healthcare systems? Probably yes, because healthcare and access for everyone, everybody generally agrees people should have access to healthcare. But should we sell it to a military hospital? Probably no. Yeah? And, but there's a lot of gray area in, in between that area. And so what we've asked for, and we've seen the same as Russia, you stay in Russia, you go. For some products, it's probably a good idea not to be in Russia. For other products, maybe not fair to withdraw from Russia. But if you're trying to find the answers, just like with my conflict minerals, what is the right behavior? Are you asking Philips to decide what the right behavior is? Or are we in dialogue deciding what the right type of behavior is for Myanmar as a company? And there, I think there's too little support from governments. They say, figure it out yourself. Your value system, you decide. I think that's not how the UN system should work. That's not how multilateralism should work. That's not where shared responsibility for society should work. Governments need to step up to help government for companies uh, display the right type of behavior. Because we're willing to do it. But if you're asking us to decide. Excellent. Catherine. Thank you for those very uh, difficult questions. I mean, I think on the, on the, on the sanctions question, uh, traditionally, uh, sanctions, when thinking about fragile contexts, um, are very problematic. Uh, because um, for the reasons that you outline in terms of uh, the affecting those parts of the population uh, that need the most help. Um, I do think it's a case-by-case -case basis, and this idea of needing to refine uh, targets of sanctions being critical. And I would echo um, the comments made earlier about the need for not just governments uh, to set the, set the parameters, but for that to be done in partnership. You know, so multi-stakeholder fora where we can agree on a case-by-case -case basis of the, the, the approach to take is critical. Um, it's a half answer, uh, but I do think these are complicated questions. On the, um, do, you know, where, where next with global uh, supply chains and do we believe in them? I do think this is a question on the African content, continent that's being asked and answered in different ways. I mean, the Africa Free Trade um, Agreement being um, an example of an attempt to envision uh, um, production on the continent and trade in very different ways. Um, and I do think this is not maybe not a watershed shed moment, but a, 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 what you'd call it a, a storm moment where because so many challenging 
issues are emerging on this continent at the same time, it could create scope for opportunities for thinking beyond uh, the continent being just a supplier of raw materials um, and, and something else. And there's lots of exciting innovation taking place on the continent, which requires, I mean, I didn't get have a chance to get into it, but in these contexts, at the small and medium-sized enterprises that are really the lifeblood of resilience in, in, in these contexts, and the big challenge is how to enable them to do, to be the foundation of an economic growth um, that will sustain in the long term um, uh, the continent. So, yeah, great questions. Fantastic. Well, thank you. We pretty much have time. I just want to do one last, you know, really um, fire round, 30 seconds each. In a year from now, what is the one practical change you'd like to see? Who wants to go first? Something that we, we can really say, oh yes, we did it this year. We, we tried, we all tried to contribute to this one change. Well, I'll start. I think um, the one big change I would like to see is a much more um, economic development in, in these countries, whether that means expanding the global supply chain or not, whether it means making it access to Europe from Africa in terms of products and services easier. I'm not so sure, but I think we need to grow the economy in Africa and it not, can't not just be about farming. Although 70% of the people are engaged in farming today, it has to uh, expand beyond that. That's a big change, but we can work to that. And Lord? Maybe try to have much more flexibility in the financing we're getting from the multinational, so multilateral, sorry, so that they are basically kind of like quicker to come. Absolutely. So in a year's time, let me, Sarah and I are very passionate about women's rights and maternal health. So in a year's time, especially in Africa, we. We've not gone from the agriculture, textile, assembly, services kind of development cycle, but we've gone straight into AI and digitization and make this digitization wave that we're now all on as a world work for education and sexual reproductive health and rights of women. And I would like to see uh, progress on finan financing instruments that are the architectures built across the partnership. So bonds or other instruments specifically directed to address some of these challenges. And I think it's doable. Very much so. Well, thank you so much, Per and Lore, Ian Willem and Catherine for contributing brilliant insights to this conversation. I think we've learned a lot from your experiences. Huge thanks to the forum for allowing us to have these conversations and to all of you for participating. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>